So what people are seeing when they go, wow, you're really good at that. So you know, why? Because somebody would always tell me why I was wrong and why I wasn't good enough. And so I got better. And the next person would tell me why I wasn't good enough and I got better. And the next person would have for 30 years. In this week's episode of You Are a Storyteller, things get a little bit more personal. We celebrate the release of Brian's new graphic novel, Old Souls, and discuss the obstacles he faced in his life and career to get to where he is today. So, um... This is a big week for you, Brian. Um, you want to talk about what this is? Uh, yeah, that's uh, my graphic novel, Old Souls, which, uh, as we tape this, uh-huh. comes out tomorrow. Um, but it'll be out by the time anybody sees this. Um, yeah, so that's what that is. I, it's with First Second, which is a uh, division of McMillan. Yeah. Yeah. What's crazy about this, Brian, is... Number one, for people that obviously listen to the podcast and read your other stuff, it's a really great way to see it in action. So a lot of people that teach story don't actually write stories. Yeah. And so this is great because you can you can read this and you can see all the stuff you always talk about mm-hmm. played out, which is really cool. Um, one of my favorite things about this, can you give a high level on what the story is, what the armature is, anything like that? Uh, I, won't, I won't. Well, we'll see. I don't know if I want to talk about the armature or not. We'll see. Uh-huh. But... Uh, the story it's about a guy who um who uh for various reasons sort of spontaneously starts to remember uh past lives it's a reincarnation story he starts to remember past lives and he gets obsessed with them and he gets obsessed with one in particular and he's so obsessed that it it, it ruins his current life so mm-hmm. he's so obsessed with this past life that yeah, he misses so, what's right in front of him right? yeah it's a uh, um it's really about addiction huh that's interesting. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah, it's really about addiction. Here's one of the big things just that I think at least it was a lesson for me to watch this happen. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about how long this was in the making. <laughs> because I think sometimes people will see, I mean, you got a huge, uh, like it's a huge publisher. The book is really beautiful. I think you might see this and go, oh, Ryan wrote this, yeah. Ryan wrote this, he put it out there. Mm-hmm. You know, it just debuted on Amazon On the uh, as far as, like, the graphic novel category. It's number one right now, mm-hmm. right? And it's probably easy to go, like, oh, I'm sure that was easy for Brian, right? <laughs> yeah. Tell me a little bit about the history of this. Like, you mentioned something uh, the other day where you said, like, if it was a person, it would be in middle school? It would be in middle school if it was a person. Okay, so tell me about how this started. Uh, well, I, I wrote it as a screenplay. It had a different title then. It was called uh, Grave Robbers, and if you read the book, it'll it'll make sense. But people kept thinking it was a horror story, so I changed it so people didn't think it was a horror story. But um, so uh, I wrote it in 2005, I believe, um, and I, I wrote it to uh, – I, I, did I tell you that? I wrote it because um, it was uh, shortly after my friend – Scott had died, mm. and um, I saw the way his father grieved that death, and I um, and I saw it sort of killing his father. I felt like it was slowly killing him. I think it was it was too much for him, and uh, so when Scott died, he was buried next to his mother, who had died a few years before, and his father had bought two plots uh early on so one for him and one for his wife and when his son died when scott died he buried scott in what was supposed to be his own grave oh wow so and for a long time it had 
his dad's name on it. it didn't have Scott's name on it. So every time his dad would no come visit. No kidding. It had his dad's name on yeah, it? Yeah. So when, every time Scott's dad would come visit the grave, he would see his name with his son inside. So it was like a, an actual, it wasn't even a metaphor. It's like, that. I'm supposed to be there, not him. It wasn't even. Wow. Yeah. Um, so um, seeing that and seeing his grief uh, got me trying to figure out how to honor that kind of a relationship and that kind of grief. And the story is sort of about that kind of grief. Hmm. Um, as you'll see when you read it, but that's what. So anyway, so um, uh, after he died, I started trying to figure out what a story would look like that was a little bit about that. And so uh, that's the story I came up with. I wrote it as a screenplay. It did very well uh, and got me a lot of attention. And it won um, it won uh, the Austin uh, screenwriting competition, which is a, essentially, I think it's number two. And like Nichols is number one. I think Austin might be number two. But tell the story one. behind that, because one of the things that's cool about that story, because you've, you've brought in your award before, and it's awesome. It's like a typewriter. Yeah. Um, how'd you become even aware of that? Oh. So I had, uh, with a, uh, the friend I had written a script, um, and we entered in a bunch of contests, and we had semifinaled at Austin. And so we went. Uh, we knew we weren't going to win. If you semifinaled, you're not going to, if you're a finalist, you, you may win, right? But semifinals, we knew we weren't going to win, but we decided to go. Because all these famous screenwriters are there, you can sort of mingle and meet with them. And, and so we were pretty interested in that. And one of my favorite guys, James L. Brooks, was there that year. Yeah. If you don't know who that is, that's just... You should find out. Yeah, that's yeah. just on you. Uh-huh. You don't know. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, mm-hmm. it was really cool that he was there. And uh, anyway, um, somebody won. Uh, actually, somebody's mother won, but she couldn't be there, so her daughters were there, and they accepted the award for her. And I saw them walking around with these awards. They're beautiful trophies. They look like a, a typewriter, but where the paper would be coming out, it's this 35-millimeter... Well, I think it's 35, it could uh-huh. be 70 millimeter uh-huh. film coming out. And uh, anyway, it's, it's gorgeous. And uh, just this heavy thing, and I loved it. And I, I saw it, and I was like, that is a beautiful statue. And I I, uh, I asked if I could hold it, and uh, they let me hold this statue. And I just liked the weight of it and the way it felt. And being a, a guy who, you know, wanting to write movies, it was like just the perfect sort of, you know, typewriter and film. I'm like, yeah. I want this. I want this. I'm going to come back and I'm going to get one of these. Interestingly, my friend didn't want to hold it. He's like, I'm not holding that. I'm like, really? So he he was like, he wanted to win and was like, I don't want to hold it. And I held it and said, I'm coming back and getting one. So it took me six years. Six years after that. It, yeah, it took me six won. years, but I did win. Yeah. And so you won. What year was it that you won? 2006. So 2006, you won for this. Mm-hmm. It's 2019 now. <laughs> yeah. How did it turn into this? Uh, in the meantime, I had, uh, you know, it, it sort of, a few people looked at it, some studios looked at it and decided not to do it, but they all seemed to like it, but just it didn't work out. And so it was just sitting around. And it was that was discouraging because I thought I had something good. Yeah. And I put a lot of, I put a lot of work in it. I mean, a lot of emotional work because I was, um, dealing with the death of my friend and his father's grief, and and uh, I was feeling things as I wrote them. So I worked very hard on it. I thought it was very well structured. A very, I thought it was a good story. Um, it did. People did respond to it in all those ways, um, but for whatever reason, 
nobody wanted it. So uh, it sat on my shelf, and I was I was uh, not very happy about it. But a friend of mine said to me, he said, Brian, this is all inventory. Anything you write mm. is inventory. <clears throat> Eventually, somebody's going to want everything. Mm. So don't worry about it. It's just inventory. So yeah, I sat great on it. Advice. Yeah, it was good advice. So I sat on it for years. And then uh, First Second called me because they had been um, reading Invisible Ink. So in the meantime, I'd written Invisible Ink, um, and they'd been reading it, and they had been giving it to authors um, and saying, you should read this book. This will help you with your stories. Like they had been doing, unbeknownst to me, they'd been doing this. I didn't know. And um, uh, their best-selling author had told them about it. And mm. um, and so that's where they heard about it. And, and – uh, they, somebody said, hey, why don't we call the guy? Maybe he can write a book for us. <laughs> so uh, that's what happened. And uh, they initially wanted me to write a writing book, which I did not want to do. Um, why not? Because it's McMillan. It's a big stage, right? It's, it's going to be everywhere. And Tell I'm me s- about McMillan. You mentioned earlier some of the other books they published a long time <laughs> well, ago. They published Gone with the Wind and... Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, okay. Right? Like, yeah, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, a lot of things. But, you know, they go back a ways. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's a big publisher. And I thought, well, this will be the biggest stage, essentially, I've been on. And I don't want to go out on a stage like that as a writing teacher. I'm fine teaching. I'm happy doing it. But I started to get more known as a teacher than as a storyteller and a filmmaker and a, and a writer myself. And I thought, if I go out on that stage and then later I try to do something else where I'm writing something, I'm, oh, he's taking – people have said that to me before. Oh, I didn't know you wrote. It's like, what do you think? <laughs> so well, a, lot of, a lot of teachers don't. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. But I didn't learn it to teach it. I learned it to do it. Right. Right. Yeah. And then I just happened to have the facility to teach it. Right. But I just – I learned it for myself. I learned it to do it. Right. So uh, so um, anyway, they, they, they said, well, the deal we cut was – all right, if you can do a story, you can write a story uh-huh. if you give us a writing book later. So the next book from them will be a book, uh, is uh, a different book, but uh, that's more. And that writing. comes out next year? I don't, they haven't told me. I suspect it'll be a year. Mm. Um, that's my suspicion, that this one will come out this year, next one, and then there's one that hasn't been announced that I'm kind of almost announcing. So, yeah, <laughs> so right. there'll be three books. But, but, uh, but the second book is, is a more of a writing book. Um, it's graphic, just like this, but right. it's more of a writing book. Um, so um, when they said, well, "Okay, we'll we'll do a you know a straight story," I I pulled this off the shelf and said, "What about this?" And they said, "We like this. We'll do this." And you're like, "Great, yeah." Just like your friend said, "Yeah, it was inventory." Huh? How did you? So I'm. You, I know you already mentioned this, but I'm bad at numbers keeping them in my head. So how many years total did did it to go from nothing? When Scott passed to okay. to now, so like two thousand when V died, two thousand three to twenty nineteen. Sixteen years. Sixteen years. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I think this is a really good lesson, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what I've asked you this before. I think we were on your birthday or something. We were talking, and mm-hmm. it's like, what kept you going those sixteen years? Like. Oh. Uh, like it just it's a long haul right right? yeah the classic overnight success thing is bullshit i think sam walton said something like every overnight success is a decade in the making or something like Mm -hmm. that like what kept you mentally going when you won the big award right and you're like great i died 
six years. It took you six. I also think it's cool. You're like, I'm going to get this. Well, are you willing to put in six years worth of work? <laughs> so you put in the six years. You got it. Yeah. And I'm assuming at that point you're like, cool. I thought it was all going to happen. It's all going to happen. Yeah. Well, it didn't. <laughs> that was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you kept going. Like, how do you keep going? Because now there's a bunch of stuff we haven't announced on the show yet where yeah. you're teaching and stuff. Like, it's your, things are going crazy for you right now. Mm-hmm. But that's it's a long burn to where now you're, you know, some of the things I'm sure we'll talk about later on that are going on in your life. But I love that it's the 16 years you didn't stop. Uh-huh. Because uh, it's paying off now. Right. It's paying off now. Um, well, it wasn't easy. I wrote other things. And those things, one of them got a lot of attention, but again, nobody bought it. Uh, we're talking about a different, even though it's not that long in the scheme of things, it's a different time now. So mm. nobody was looking for diversity. Oh. People would give lip service to it, but they weren't. Yeah. Right? So um, that made it difficult. That, made it, that just made it difficult. You know, now it's like, hey, we want people of color, you know, but they didn't, they weren't looking for that. So I think that had a lot to do with... Or they want... Now they want diversity in front of the camera. Well, that's a whole different thing. Right. That's a whole different discussion. Thing. Yeah. So, yeah, now it's all about casting, which I think is a strange focus. Mm. Um, I think casting is a strange focus. First of all, I'm not an actor. So yeah. casting doesn't change my life. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, the other thing is you don't get a diversity of voices or diversity of perspective just by casting. Right. You know, um, nothing wrong with casting. It's great. But representation can mean different things. It can mean casting. It can mean directing. It can mean writing. Right. It can mean producing. It can mean the ability to green light things. Right. Right. That changes what goes down the pipeline. Yeah. Right. So I think that it's actually more important to change who makes decisions. Because if you change who makes decisions, all that other stuff will change. Yeah. But if you just change casting, it doesn't go backwards. Right. You know, it's just not going to work that way. And I if anybody's a... interesting, they should, interested, they should look up the statistics. Yeah. They're not changing. No, they're like not. Like, it's it probably feels like it's changing. Yeah. Look it up. Yeah. Look it up, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was an issue, and I can't say that that wasn't hard. Yeah. I can't say that. Um, it's weird to be a person who people at the top of the craft will come and ask you questions. And ask for your advice, mm -hmm. and sometimes pay you for your advice, but never essentially put a ring on your finger and say, "You know yeah. what? We're going to give you this job writing this thing." Yeah. No, we're going to hire somebody else to do that. But thanks for solving our but problems. But they'll hire you to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that wasn't pleasant. Yeah. It wasn't pleasant. So sixteen years. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. And then you just opened this 16, week. Now, we're just only talking about this book. Yeah, yeah, sure. We're not, <laughs> yeah. Right, right. But I'm saying it's 16 years because if people look it up and go like, well, Brian's book is number one graphic novel on Amazon right now. Just remember what went into that. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's not like you knocked this out six months ago. No. Right. And you're like, oh, hey, this is easy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a hell of a thing that you kept going. Mm hmm. Um, well, it helps not to have any skills. I mean, I don't know how to do anything. I know how to do this. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I think that if I had had, there are times in my career if I, where if I could have done other things, I probably would have done them. Right? But all I wanted to do since I was five years old is this. So, yeah. so that's where all my energy went. 
So um, that's what I knew how to do. I didn't know how to stop doing it. I think I, I contemplated stopping, but I don't know how to stop. He said, um, when we were talking earlier, he said it was almost like how some people look at basketball or they look at sports or something. As their way out, right. And that's the way I felt, like being poor as a kid. And I'm like, I'll just make movies. I'll be really good at it. And then they'll have to give me work, right? No. No, they don't. Hmm. No, they don't. And they, they'll acknowledge that I'm good at it. Which and is, you'll win all the award, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I won a few awards. Those yeah. awards started to not feel good to have around. Really? Why? Because they, because they, each time I won something big, I thought it was going to change my life in some way. Hmm. And all it was was just a thing in my apartment letting me know that people thought I was good, but we're not willing to give you a career. Um, that, yeah, I didn't like it. It was like putting a big middle finger on my mantle. <laughs> yeah. And it, it wasn't, it's not fun. Uh, and the only award that I kept out was that, because I had won slam dances. But the only award I kept out was the was that trophy from Austin because that trophy represented something else. That trophy represented perseverance and other things and how I set a goal and I reached it, which is different than just winning a trophy. So that trophy is personal. It has nothing to do with the outside world. It has everything to do with me, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Six years. Yeah. I'm going to do it. You got it. Yeah. That's amazing. It was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Also, who was in the audience? Sidney Pollack was there. Dude, that's so crazy. Sidney Pollack was in the audience, and he got an award that day. Same award. He had the same trophy I did. (laughs) Yeah. That was cool. That's cool. Yeah, it was really cool. I didn't get a chance to talk to him. I wanted to. Um, He didn't live too much longer after Mm -hmm. that, but um, I wanted to talk to him. Yeah. Yeah. About Tootsie, mostly, I think. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Man, so all that, and it, here it finally is. Can you talk a little bit about the process? Because I've learned a lot. Some, I've never gotten to do graphic novels. I'm mm-hmm. just a fan of graphic novels, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but how how does it turn into this, right? Yeah. Because I know we have a lot of filmmakers and stuff mm-hmm. that probably be also interested in, like, like, can you just explain the process of even, like, the panels? Like, you've showed me kind of more behind-the-scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. How does it actually turn from a script into this? Well, Because uh, the artwork's insane. Like He did a great job. Uh, Les McLean did an amazing job on the art. Well, this book was a little different mm-hmm. than other uh, comics I've written and the graphic novels that are following this. So because it had been a screenplay, yeah. Les read the screenplay, the artist, and said, well, I can just work off of this. Mm. That's not usually how it works. Yeah. You know, usually I would have written a comic book script, which is a little bit different, where you break down what happens in each panel, or you can write that way. Yeah. I tend to write that way. I'm a visual thinker, so I tend to write the panels. Um, gotcha. And that's the process you usually now for your other books. Right. Got it. Okay, that's yeah. what you showed me then. Yeah, I showed you that. So that yeah. didn't happen. He just worked right off of the, wow, that's great. the, the film script. But I, um, you know, we would adjust things, or I would rewrite things based on his art. Yeah. But um, basically, I didn't. All I did was blow the dust off of it and hand it over, and then he drew from that. Um, Let me ask you a question. On this perseverance piece, because honestly, that's becoming kind of the armature of this show. We didn't anticipate it. <laughs> no. Being, how, when did you sell your film? When did you sell Whiteface to HBO? 2000, uh, 2001, I think. And it ran how often on HBO? Like it was on. I would say it was on 
pretty much every day for two years. I was on a lot. How did that not? I'm sure if I were you. Yeah. I sell a short. Mm-hmm. Number one, how often does HBO they, ro- show shorts? They're the most discriminating buyer of short films. They don't buy them. They don't. It was a big deal to sell it. So you sold it to them, mm-hmm. which also got you out of the Oscar race. Right. That's right. Another. Yeah. Can you explain that? Because there's filmmakers out there that probably need to hear hear how this works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when I first made this movie, Whiteface, which I th- think we'll be able to link to. Yeah. Uh, so uh, when I first sold this movie, now you have to understand, it's hard for people to see this movie the way it appeared when I made it. So it has sort of a documentary style. The reason it has that style is because I didn't have any money when I made the movie. And uh, I thought I was going to have to make it on film because of where the technology was at that moment, which meant I wasn't going to have a lot of film. And I wanted to write something that would allow me to have mistakes and be able to keep those takes. Hmm. So I thought, well, if I do a documentary, then a screw-up might fit right in. So it was a tactical thing to make it look like a documentary. So I wrote something that... That you could shoot. Yeah. Yeah. That I could shoot and that could be a little rough around the edges and it would play into the style of the piece. So it wasn't me going, you know what would be cool, a documentary style. It wasn't that. It was, wait, I can shoot that. I won't need a lot of lights. I won't need, you know, I mean, you know, all the things that cost money, I won't need as many of those things. Yeah. So uh, that's why it was written the way it was. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, so I wrote it. It took me, I wrote it in a day. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's crazy. I wrote it in a day. I had been trying at that point to break into film for a long time mm-hmm. and um and and had you know been in LA doing it trying to do it and uh didn't work out and so I wanted to write something make something that was a writing and directing sample but when I first wrote it I couldn't um I wrote it in 90 something but I couldn't afford to shoot it I didn't have any money and but people liked the script the script even won an award um, but I couldn't, couldn't afford it. And then the technology caught up enough that I could make it yeah. digitally. So then I was able to make it. Uh, so uh, now things kind of look like, that's what everything looks like now. Yeah. So there was no such thing as the office. There was right. no such thing. Yeah. Like that wasn't the way things looked. It was so different that most of the crew had no idea what kind of movie we were making. Like, what? You don't, you know, you don't want me to act it up and be funny i'm like no right. be serious it'll work better you know it was like one actor understood it the other actors had to be directed into like giving more subdued performances because can you kind of give the overview of the film too like well it's it's uh it's about the problems that clowns would have if they were an actual race of people and so it's a documentary about that yeah. and and so when you put clown makeup on actors they want to be funny yeah and so i had to uh direct that out of them you know, give them uh, different things to think about rather than being funny. Um, because it was, it, it's not that it wasn't funny, but it, I didn't want the people in the movie to be self-conscious about being funny. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, it's the, awesome. the lives man. of like these people. Yeah, it's an awesome movie. Oh, like, thanks. Um, and so... Uh, Anyway, so, uh, yeah, I shot that, and uh, so, it, I mean, people volunteered, and, you know, whatever. I got some money from, like, it was sort of like crowdfunding before there was crowdfunding. Yeah. Like, people were like, well, I'll give you money, and people would give me $100 yeah. or $50 or whatever, and 
So I made it for a thousand dollars. Did you really made it for a thousand bucks? I made it for a thousand dollars, and uh, I mean that doesn't include the free. Yeah, sure. All your friends. That, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so for a thousand dollars, and then it sold to HBO, and like at one slam dance, and then that must have been crazy. It was insane. Yeah, it was insane. Sure. Yeah, uh, and I thought, well, slam dance is a big thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it's a big festival. It's an important festival. Um, I showed the movie once. Um, it showed. Well, it showed two official times and one like unofficial time in Park City. Uh, there was one company that like you could show your like in Park City where you're like you could bring your movie and they would show it on their screen. And I was like, you weren't supposed to do it. I'm like, I'm showing my movie. Anyway, so I showed it. But when I showed it once, I could walk around Park City. I mean, there's big stars and everything. But there are people who had seen the movie. They were like, you're that guy. You're that guy, Mr. Whiteface. One guy was, was from New York. He's like, Mr. Whiteface. Every time I saw him, like it was like, it was like an instant. I was an instant celebrity. It was a strange thing in a place full of celebrities. Yeah. Um, but it, it hit, and in fact, um, you know, before they announced the winner, the other uh, short filmmakers would say, "Oh, well, you've you won. You won. Your film is clearly better. Uh, you won." And really? so, yeah, yeah, uh, and I did win. And um, now every time back then when we showed it, audiences, they look at it differently now just because I think because the, the whole landscape has changed, right? right? So like I say, they're used to seeing the look of it and all that. So people see it differently now. But uh, at that moment, before the Slam Dance Award and after, every time I screened it, Somebody would say, oh, this shit won an Academy Award. This shit won an Academy Award. This shit, like, every time. Um, and uh, the two things I heard was, this should be used for education, huh. <laughs> and you should win an Academy Award. I heard it every time. From the first screening. I, yeah. You know? And um, so when I signed with my distributor, I said, and a lot of people were sort of courting me at the, at the festival trying to get me to sign with them. And I said, look, I know the Academy has pretty strict rules, and um, so I don't want to do anything. I think they just thought I was some arrogant filmmaker who thought he should win an Academy Award. But it was right. like, well, if everybody was saying it, I wasn't going to blow my chances. Right. I'm trying yeah. to build a career here. Yeah. So um, I said, I, I don't want to blow my chances at the Academy Award nomination. And they're like, oh, no, it's fine. You know, we, we understand. And so I signed with this distributor. Uh, they called me a little while later after the festival and they go HBO wants the movie and I said okay now I didn't care I mean I didn't it's not like I didn't care yeah I cared about building a career so I was like okay that's fine but how will this impact the Academy Awards right <laughs> right yeah. uh, and they were like well we'll think about that later but right now we have to sell to HBO they're the most discriminating buyer of short films they pay well blah 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 you have to do this deal I'm like I'm fine doing the deal, I just don't want to blow the chances of the Academy Award yeah. nomination. So, uh, and it seemed to me, I didn't get it in writing, and I should have, but it seemed to me the distributor would want an Oscar-nominated film. Sure. So why wouldn't, so what they did, though, is they went ahead and sold it to HBO with no stipulations on when they could show it. Once they showed it, we were disqualified. We could not qualify for the Academy Awards. Can you explain that? Why? Um, yeah, because... Uh, there are certain festivals. Now, Slam Dance is a qualifying festival. So, if you get into Slam Dance now, 
you can qualify for the Academy Awards, but not then. So there are certain festivals. I think Atlanta's one. There are a few. Because it has to go to a certified festival and play yeah. before it's commercially shown. Right. Otherwise, you're disqualified. Right. Um, so two things that were uh, angry-making about this was, <laughs> yeah. was um, that HBO actually won an Academy Award that year for a documentary they made. They just didn't air it until they qualified. Which would have been easy to so write. So they into. knew the rule. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah. Would yeah. have been easy to write into a contract. Yeah. The other thing is the film that won Best Short that year was a film that I beat at Slam Dance. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I thought selling a film to HBO, I, well, this will be good for my career. It almost did nothing. It, it did almost nothing for me. I mean, it sort of built my reputation. Like, people went, oh, that guy, that guy's good. He knows what he's doing. But I, I can't say it got me any work in any real way. Like, maybe wow. it got me a little job here or there. I guess it got me a little couple of jobs, but nothing. Like, I didn't, couldn't get an agent still um, after that. That's crazy. It took me 20 years to get an agent. It took me 20 years to get an agent. We're looking for diversity. Really? It took me 20 years to get an agent. And nobody thinks I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. So. 20 years. Yeah, it took me 20 years. How in the hell? Like, Brian, like, how? I don't understand. Like, yeah, I get it. You're like, well, I can't do anything else. It's like, well, stop it. I mean, there's lots of things you could do. Like, the fact you didn't tap out is crazy, like, to me. Hmm. The discouragement is so strong. Mm -hmm. You You... The HBO thing doesn't happen. It it happened to you, right? right? I mean, like you don't sell your short to HBO. No. And then true. they ran it every day for a couple of years. <laughs> right. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. The slam dance thing that that could have you know she should have been in competition. Like all these things, even the fact that you're like, whatever that would have been, five years later, you hold an award and you're like, I'm gonna do that too. You get it. Mm -hmm. uh, but the fact that you were able to not lose heart. I think, but that's not true. Hmm. Uh, it's not true that I didn't lose heart. That's not true. Um, I just didn't know what else to do. But it's not true that it, you know, it was not easy. Um, I just didn't know what else to do. And I had a kind of, I had a kind of, I can't explain it other than uh, I got to a point where a piece of me seemed to die off and and I grieved it the same way I grieved you know people I know who've died and all of that where my life that I thought I was going to have since I was a little kid in terms of uh, what kind of filmmaker I was going to be able to be and what kind of things I was going to be able to do wasn't happening no matter what I did no matter how close I got um, the, the door would always slam in my face I would always hit that wall hit that ceiling always and uh, for years and years and years, for decades. I mean, you know, I go. I moved to L.A. in 86 to be a writer-director. And that's also about the same year I started to try to get into comic books, which is gonna, was going to be my fallback plan, but it's taken 30, <laughs> 34 years <laughs> for this book to come out. Um, so um, there are people who got born, grew up, started careers and started a family the whole time I've been trying to break in. That's insane. 
That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. And so that didn't always, that wasn't always easy to deal with. And so, but once I sort of let go of what I thought things would look like and went, I'm teaching, people like what I'm doing, um, I'm influencing people, I'm helping other people get their careers, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I have people who like, oh, yeah, you taught me this and I was able to get a job here or I'm directing or making, the, you know, like stuff. I, I taught them and they, they could go off and have careers while I stayed behind, which yeah. was sometimes hard. I didn't yeah. have any yeah, bad feelings about them. Sure. You know, um, but sometimes that was hard. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So there's a lot f- uh, about this book for me. It represents a lot of things. But then to come out at number one, that's awesome. And, yeah. you know, if people were to go look at the, the rankings right now, the two people behind you are insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, I just think it's amazing. I just think it's amazing that you kept going because now again we can't talk about all the stuff you're doing but like people listen to the show will see more and more books and things that you're doing but it just from the outside everything always looks easy mm-hmm. right well it's like yeah you know i read brian's book it's easy for him he just you know he, <laughs> yeah, yeah you know he whatever knowing what goes on behind it i think is really important because mm-hmm. there's people out there i guarantee that are listening to this episode that definitely needed to hear this Oh, I hope so. <clears throat> that are sitting there going like, well, that's draft, whatever. That's the 30th rejection or wh- whatever, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to and to see this this coming out and all the other things, it's it takes a lot. Yeah. Well, you have to be careful. Um, there's this interesting thing, and it's both right and wrong. So it, it, often in in uh, in Hollywood, I, I'll put it in quotes because in LA in that business um, they often um, want the next thing so they don't care what you just did they never have asked me a thing about what I'm handing them they're like what what's next what are you doing it's like you have a thing right there in front of you uh-huh. what's the next thing like yeah, they always right. like nothing's ever new enough and fresh enough so it's like yeah. yes this is old now that I've seen it what do you have that's new and so um, uh, so they're not uh, they don't care that you think you you've written something worthwhile. They just want you to write the next thing. And some people who don't have a lot of experience and maybe haven't written something as good as they think mm-hmm. or made something as good as they think can be delusional about what they have. Mm-hmm. And so they go, but this is a masterpiece and I'm not going to move. I'm just going to, for years and years, I'm just going <laughs> to beat this dead horse, right? Yeah. Um, now, I did some of that, but I also thought I had I you know I was honest about what I had I thought right um I did win an award right right, right yeah. you know so it was like well I, I'm not I'm not completely delusional about what I've done yeah um but I think people have to be careful about that too because people can get I think that that delusion can be helpful in the process of working on something yeah right cuz you can't work on something if you think it's crap the whole time you're doing it. Right. Right? So you invest a lot in it. You believe in yourself enough to do it, enough to finish it, to complete it, all those things. That that can be a difficult thing. I don't know how many students I've had who've started things or people I talk to who start things. They don't finish things. It's difficult. So you do a lot when you finish, but it's a lot of trusting yourself and believing in yourself. 
And so that sometimes carries over, even if you haven't done the best job. Like you probably maybe you need to write five more screenplays before you've written that one. Right. You know what I mean? But uh, people don't do that. Often with their first screenplay, I don't know why. People with their first screenplay think, I've got it. I've got it. They almost never have it. And for some reason, they think they're the ones who've beat the system. And I know everybody else's first screenplay sucks. That's but the not I'm mine. special clause you've I'm talked special. about. Yeah. Yeah. I know a screenwriting teacher who says that about students. Like, they're like, I'm special. I <laughs> it was like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll be able to cut through the dark forest and nothing bad will happen to me. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so you have to get over that um, thing. But mm-hmm. if you have something worthwhile and you know you have something worthwhile, I think you do have to stick to it and uh, believe it enough to, to be with it for the long haul. I also think it was cool you were flexible enough to go, yeah, yeah, I can be a graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Like, you didn't go like, no, that's a script. I won, <laughs> like, right? Right. You were like, yeah, I could. it's a story. Well, you know what was weird about it? And I, I, believe me, I do not understand uh, uh, the movie business for a lot of reasons, and, and no, one, no one does. But here's what I don't understand. I write a screenplay. This happened with every screenplay at a certain point. Um, they stopped wanting screenplays. They're like, you'd show, you'd show a screenplay, and they go, you know, this is, if this was a, a novel, <laughs> it's like, but it's not a novel. I'm a screenwriter. If it was a novel, it'd be so much easier to sell as a movie. I'm like, why did I waste so many years learning how to I write a screenplay? I wrote it as a movie. Yeah, it's, there it is. Yeah, it's not. So, so um, uh, I actually had just begun trying to write this as a novel. I had just begun. I'm like page three when I get the call. Uh, do you want? Can we do a graphic novel with you? That's amazing. Yeah, but you know, it, it was. You're like sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's getting out there, right? Like, yeah. No, no, I'm happy because graphic because I'd written yeah, comics. It looks so awesome too. Like I'd written comics and and the those forms are closer right mm. writing a novel is a very different thing yeah i did not feel comfortable in that environment at all right um it's just not the way my brain works it's so internal yeah you know um and the way that i learned how to tell stories is more external hmm. can you explain that well yeah if you pick up a novel just open it to any page you'll it'll tell you what people are thinking and feeling mm. and Right, you know, what things feel like and taste like. That's all stuff in drama you can't do. Yeah. Right? So you have to learn how to get those ideas across in in ways that work in drama. Hmm. Right? So you have to you have to be able to you, you have to understand if you've set up something correctly, then people will read this scene the way they're supposed to. I've established this over here, so by the time people see this over here, they'll know what this character's feeling or thinking. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> uh, because you can't just say it. Right. Right? So you learn how to to um, structure differently. You know how to... Um, well, show it, right? Show it. Yeah. Instead of telling it. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, a, a novelist might disagree with that assessment, but that's, for me, that's the difference in the process. Yeah. One of the things, and this is what we were going to talk about today, and I appreciate you talking about everything else, too, because I think it's really important to pull back the veil a bit for people that, you know, don't understand what it actually takes and what it really looks like, right? Um, But you wrote a story Mm -hmm. that was a film. That film has been turned into a graphic novel, Mm -hmm. right? Structure applies to both. Right. (laughs) Right? All the principles you're talking about apply to all communication. Right. 
which I think is really interesting because one of the things I was hoping to talk about is your speech, if that you're okay with that. Mm -hmm. So you went and gave a speech, and it's funny because structurally it's all the same stuff you teach in screenwriting. Like the way you – I watched it. I didn't get to go because it's a big, big, you know, thing, right? right? Which is cool, but like you're like they recorded it. And so you sent it to me, and you're like, hey, it just got posted, and I watched it. And I didn't see it coming at the end the way you close it, mm-hmm. right? But I was like, damn it, he did the same. You used all the exact stuff you taught for how to tell stories. Mm-hmm. Is all You applied it all to your speech. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of want to talk about the how all the stuff you're teaching, you could use it for a speech, oh, yeah. you could use it for a book, you could use it for... Um, in order for us to do that, can you kind of set up... Who like what is this conference you were speaking about? Who are the kind of people that were speaking at it? Because right. like you got a standing ovation and stuff. It's a no joke thing. So what was the conference? It's called the EG conference, and it was initially started by the guy who started started TED. Yeah. So it's sort of like a TED talk. Yeah. And uh, the, yeah, they asked me to come speak, and uh, what they they. Uh, they didn't. They hadn't heard me speak before, so they had heard about me. And somebody said, "You know who would be good is Brian McDonald." So they called me and and asked me what I would talk about. And I talked about story stuff, and they were like, "Yeah, you could talk about that," because they hadn't seen it, so they don't yeah. know what I do. Yeah. Right. And then I I mentioned this other thing, and they were like, "Yes, talk about that." So. Um, and just to give somebody an idea, hey, who did you meet there? Uh-huh. Right. Like you got to meet somebody really cool that yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. right yes I did uh, well I got I got to meet uh, Frank Oz and hang out with him and uh, if people don't know who Frank Oz is that's I I don't know what to tell you <laughs> I don't know what to tell you um, but also in the past who were some of the other speakers in the past like uh, uh, James Cameron spoken there uh, Quincy Jones has spoken there um, you know that's the yeah. caliber yeah right speaker they've gotten before and so you get the call to go mm-hmm. what's crazy to me is that you're like oh, okay well i know what to do i'll just structure it right like it's a like it's it's like a tool that you can use mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. hey you're writing a movie you're like i know how to do it oh giving a speech you're like okay i know how to do it mm-hmm. can you talk about the subject you chose yeah i uh it was a a, a talk about um uh, about how I found empathy for the person who murdered my brother. So it's all about that. Um, which people, uh, I mean, they found that idea fascinating when I told them about it. Uh, people, people find it, I guess, unusual. So, um, so that's what I talk about. Well, yeah, I mean, it was unusual because even even the paper picked up the letter right back when it happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to talk about what happened? Yeah. Essentially my brother was walking down the street and, and, uh, got in some conflict that is hard to, we don't know exactly what happened there, but essentially my brother was walking down the street and this guy was like, Hey, get out of here. My brother's like, I can walk wherever I want to. And the guy put a lot of gun and shot him and killed my brother. Um, and then took off. The guy took off. Um, he had his girlfriend with him, and they took off. And they were took him a, a little while to catch him. Not a long, but it took him a little while to catch them. And they caught them. Um, and uh, yeah. How could you have empathy for him? Uh, 
because even in court, I remember, um, I remember you wrote a letter and it was actually put in a paper because people couldn't believe it. Uh huh. Right about how you had empathy for the person that killed your brother. Right. Like, can you walk me through how that's possible? Uh. Yeah. I, I, it doesn't. I don't know what it appears like on the other yeah. side of it, right? Yeah. So I don't know. I'm not sure what I'm doing that's so fascinating, if that makes any sense. Uh-huh. Because for me, when that guy laid out what his life was on how um, you know, he was born he, he was born into a situation where he his his family members were uh Gang members, so he's born into a gang, born into a gang, yeah. born into poverty, born into violence, um, you know, born into poor school systems. You know, all those things were things I understood. I mean, I wasn't born into a gang, but um, uh, there was early violence uh, that I talk about in the talk. Um, uh, there was poverty, and there was also a system. Uh, school system and other systems that were willing to throw me away. Um, and I knew that. And I also my struggles with film and comic books, right? Um, seeing people who know half of what I know, who don't look like I look, mm-hmm. getting <clears throat> every opportunity yeah. over years, I saw that. Um, that's hard to take. And I saw it, and it, it, it had dramatized itself to me for years. So by the time I'm sitting in that courtroom and the guy's saying, this happened to me, I'm like, well, yeah, I understand that. This happened to me. Well, I understand that too. This happened. You know, he, he, um, you know, he, he couldn't get work. And like, I understood all those things. So it was sort of like, oh, I see. And so, and my brother understood them too, would have understood them too. So, um, I mean, I can't speak for him. I'm sure he didn't want to get killed in the street. I can't speak for that to that. All I can say is that, um, and your brother was a middle school art teacher, right? Well, like, he, he, uh, it was an after school mm. program thing that he, it's like a summer thing and an after school yeah. thing that he taught at, but he taught art to children. And, uh, he, yeah, um, all I can say is that my brother and I went through the same school systems. Oh, we, we, we had the same opportunities and lack of opportunities. Um, and so I just understood. I just understood w- that it would have taken, you know, that much to put us in that position. We were lucky. We weren't born into projects. We weren't born, you know. And we 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 got lucky with some things. And all I could see it was as luck. We got lucky that we were born here instead of there, or at this time instead of that time, or you know, whatever. So I I just felt lucky, and I know what the system can do to you. And I know that sometimes. Um, when people have low expectations for you, that it can, it's much easier to um, go ahead and, and bend to that because there's actually less resistance in a weird way. Can you help me understand that? What do you mean by that? <clears throat> um, Chris Rock said something about racism. He said, um, you, you could live your life and not really feel the effects of racism until you try to do something. And that's true. And so I knew that whenever I tried to do things, 
that's when the resistance came. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, people read my books or see my talks or something, and they're like, how come, how can you not be bigger? How can you not have, you know? I've been with you and people have said, like, how often have you heard that? I've heard it for years and years. Yeah. From people with Oscars and Pulitzers yeah. and Emmys and, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I know it's an injustice. I know it is. So, um, so it just wasn't a hard leap for me to see how that guy ended up there on that corner selling drugs. And uh, it just wasn't hard. And so, um, my feeling was that the system had failed him. Well, like, let's look at Flint, Michigan, right? Um, Flint, Michigan, pretty big black population. I mean, there's poor white people who live there too, but it's a pretty big black population. And what's going to happen? Well, we know they have lead poisoning, these kids. Yeah. We know that lead, we know what lead poisoning does. We know that they're going to have, uh, impulse control issues. We know they're going to have learning issues. We know all these things, right? But what's going to happen in 15 years? 20 years when we're dealing with the effects of that, but it looks like, oh, that guy was violent. Mm -hmm. We'll throw that guy in jail. But shouldn't the people who poison the water mm -hmm. go to jail? Like, why do I don't understand why we start talking about justice at the end of that process? Yeah. Right. And so we know that in a lot of poor communities, um, there was lead paint on the walls, and a lot of kids ate those paint chips. And mm -hmm. so, so it's like, I don't know. Would that? I don't know if that guy grew up in a situation like that, but he could have. It's, it's it's possible, and he's a little bit older than me, so it's probable. And by the way, people knew what lead did even then. Didn't come along later. So, so I just understood how the system could could keep you down, mm. and so um, I was much angrier at the system than I was at that individual. The person that actually pulled the trigger. Yeah. That was the end of a process. Yeah. A any time they could have stopped that from happening. Right. 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 I mean, he tried to get a job. He tried to get a job and couldn't get a job. You know, so any time they could have stopped it from happening. The way we fund school systems, I mean, the, you know, like if you live in a rich area, you go to a nicer school yep. because of the way that, the, you know, the – the uh, schools are funded through property taxes. That's why you have good school districts and bad school districts. Yeah. That's how that works. It's not an accident. Right. So the people with keep it and the people without stay without. That's just the way we've set that system up to be that way. That's not an accident. We could just tax people and distribute the <laughs> money equally. But I guarantee you there'd be riots in the streets because the people who like what they have want to keep what they have. Yeah. Let's just give a quick example. So right now on Amazon, as far as graphic novels goes, you're number, you have the number one best-selling graphic novel right now, right? Uh, in a particular category. Yeah, in that category. Yeah. But here's the funny thing. What happened when you tried to get into a creative writing class when you were in school? Um, I wasn't allowed to be in it. Uh, the guy wouldn't let me in. The teacher would not let me in. I talk about it in the talk, so I want to. Yeah, but I mean, you think talk. about how crazy that is. Yeah, yeah. You, you you wanted to be in a creative writing class. You couldn't even be in the creative. Couldn't writing be class. in it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, in some ways, you know, I look at that teacher who wouldn't let me in. 
to his class. And for a long time, I was angry at him. I'm still angry at him in a lot of ways. But he's, he, because, you know, he's an adult, and I was a kid, and he, you know, um, and I was asking for his help, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I still have, but in a way, maybe he helped me. And what I mean is he gave me something to prove. You know what I mean? Jeez, I guess. Yeah. Well, he did. He gave me something to prove. What people don't understand is that um, writing and whatever skills I, I have, um, I don't know how many of them are natural or what I came with or whatever. I don't know. But I do know that a lot of it's like a muscle and that it, that it, it got stronger with resistance. Huh. So what people are seeing when they go, wow, you're really good at that. So you know, why? Because somebody would always tell me, why I was wrong and why I wasn't good enough. And so I got better. And the next person would tell me why I wasn't good enough and I got better. And the next person would tell me. It happened for 30 years. That's what people see. What people see is a muscle that got exercised. Yeah, but what's interesting to me is that, you know, most people that would tear, like you wouldn't, you you kept using it to get stronger, right? Mm-hmm. Other, like, I couldn't have done it. Like, it would have cracked me. Like You know what I'm saying? Like, the fact that you just, just didn't go like, well, the hell with it. This is crazy. Mm-hmm. You, that you held to this point where things are coming around, mm-hmm. right? Like that's the fact that it did. Because you know they say life either you either get better or you get bitter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like the fact that it's like, well, I got better, I got stronger, and I well, got both be- those things happened, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, but that's that's a lot. It is a lot. It is a lot. And I, I, you know, I don't have any. That's what I mean by not having. I don't have a fallback. It's not like I can't. When I say you think I can do lots of things, I can't. I can do. I can do the things I know how to do, and I do them pretty well. But I can't do much else. You know, if you want me to direct your movie, I can do that. Yeah. Right? You know. You know. You want me to to write your script, I can do that. You need somebody to teach you how to do it, I can do it. There are things I can do, and I do them pretty well. The other things, I cannot do. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. So how did you take something like that? A, what made you go, I'm willing to talk about this? Because, you know, most people wouldn't talk about that. Like, mm-hmm. I found, when I heard that it happened, when I was just, back then I was just a student in your class. Mm-hmm. I, like, looked it up and I read the letter and I was like, holy shit. I didn't even know. Like, I read the letter. I was like, what? So when they called you, what made you go, okay, I'll talk about this? Well, they just kept asking me. You know, well, what else could you talk about? There's anything you're working on, you know, um, that, you know, you haven't talked about before. Um, and so um, I'm working on something. Yeah. Uh, with that material. So I just said, well, I've got this. And they were like, yeah, do that. So walk me through then. So you decide, you did. And of course, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I could see why they're like, yeah, talk about that. Mm-hmm. Right. But when you watch it, things to look for, like you didn't, weren't allowed to have notes at the right before or something like that. <laughs> no. Like what was the thing? Well, I had notes. Yeah. Um, I was really worried about, they, they sent out an email going, please speakers don't go over 20 minutes. Yeah. And uh, so I'm like, okay, don't go over 20 minutes. They got, yeah, 20 minutes, you know? And uh, so I, uh, I, I, you know, wrote my speech and um, had certain things I wanted to hit and I timed it to about 20 minutes. I was pretty close. And uh, so it was PowerPoint where I had, you know, uh, the presenter's view. So I had my slide plus the notes. 
So backstage, just before the talk, um, we set it up backstage and on the monitor. And it's like, okay, there's the picture. There's the notes. Perfect. I go out on stage. Can't see my notes. Different monitor, different setup. Can't see my notes. Perfect. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, I, I had done enough public speaking. Some of the people who spoke probably hadn't done as much public speaking. So if something would go wrong on stage with their clicker or something, like one guy walked off stage, he was off stage for like, I don't know, 30 seconds trying to figure out, like, well, what do I push? What do I... And it just slows everything down, takes the energy right. out, right? So uh, I was just like, well, now I'm up here, and I just have to do it. So I was sort of winging it. Um, I knew I knew the shape of the piece. Yeah. But, I mean, there were things I wanted to say I didn't say and transitions I had yeah. in there that aren't there. But the shape of the piece is interesting because you, you helped me – with my speech before this thing w that I did mm -hmm. and I told you when I got off uh, when I got done I was like that was so much easier to do than because it was structured well yeah like when I'd done it before I'd always have to go to my notes and what that tells me is I didn't structure it right yeah but because you were like no you got to structure it like because I structured it right I was like I didn't even have to look at my notes mm -hmm. because it was just natural like right. I was talking just right. like it naturally happens. So when you sit down to prep something like this, walk me through, like, what was your process for the speech? Because, again, I want people to show that it's all the same. Right. So you kind of knew what you wanted to talk about. Right. Right? You found your – did you start with an armature, or how did you – Yeah, I did. I started with my armature. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I knew I wanted to talk about um, – I don't want to give the speech away because yeah. I want people to be able to watch. But I, I did know my armature. So I knew what I wanted to say. So I knew my proposal. Yeah. Right? And all I had to do was argue it, prove it. Yeah. So I said, oh, I'll start with this proposal. I will look for things that prove it, that argue this point that I'm trying yeah. to make. Here's an example. Here's an example. Here's an example. Now, the great thing about that is that made it sort of modular, meaning I knew that if I – told the story here that made my point, told the story here that made my point, told the story here. If I found myself running out of time, I could always drop a story because I'd mm. already proven, right? Right. Like, oh, I'm at, I'm at 19 minutes. I better get off the stage here. So I could stop and then get to my conclusion, my third act, right? Yeah. It was, so in that way, it was easy to do. I just had to be proving that point the whole time. Right. Right? And then my conclusion, it's a circular thing right so my conclusion is my beginning. yeah your third act is crazy yeah it lands. So, yeah and so. you could feel it in the room because you got a standing o and you could feel it just when you land it yeah and then you walk i was like dang dude that was like i didn't even though i know the how you structure stuff <laughs> yeah i didn't see i was like god that's great right the way you mm -hmm. brought it back and mm -hmm. so that's stuff that people should look for but you also did something at the beginning that i don't think is giving anything away, mm -hmm. but you at a certain section in the first act, you mentioned that people might be uncomfortable and you were okay with that. Mm -hmm. And I asked you about it. I was like, why'd you say that? Because it, it felt weird in the room. You took it on, you said it, and it almost felt like everybody relaxed after that. Yeah. And you said, you said something, you said, well, it's address and dismiss. Can you talk about that idea of address and dismiss? Yeah. Address and dismiss is something, um, you use it in drama and stories all the time. And it's where you think you might lose an audience. So if you forgot characters doing something, uh, my favorite example is, is from uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So there's a, there, if you haven't seen it, see Butch Cassidy. <laughs> but but um, 
Uh, but uh, they're they're running from uh, this this posse, this sort of super posse that's chasing them, and uh, they get to a cliff, and uh, there's just a there's a drop off. There's water, you know. There's a river down there, and there's this drop off, and they're they're kind of trapped. And um, Butch uh, Cassidy says, uh, he goes, well, that's all we can do is we got to jump. And the Sundance kid's like, no, 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 we'll, we'll shoot it out. And he goes, no, we'll just jump. It'll, it, we'll just, you know. And he's, and he's like, no, no, no. He's like, for, he keeps trying to convince, you know, uh, uh, Sundance to, to jump. And finally he admits, I can't swim, okay? I can't swim. <laughs> and uh, Butch Cassidy laughs at him and he says, well, hell, the fall will probably kill you. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Right? What's great about that is this. The, that audience at that time, like now – People do anything on the movie screen and live through it, right? Right. Like explosions happen, and all that happens is they get propelled. Right, 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 yeah, right, right. right. So, but back then it wasn't true. So you could have lost the audience because there'd be people sitting there going, "But they would never live through that." Yeah. Right. That would kill you jumping from that. Right? right. But if they address it, then the audience goes, "Well, they know they're not trying to sneak one over on me." Yeah. Right. And then they can relax and believe in it. Hmm. So um, that's one way you use address and dismiss is where you think you might lose the audience. Just acknowledge it. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Just say that <laughs> you're going to be uncomfortable. I'm OK with that. Yeah. I was like, geez. All right. Mm-hmm. But, if, but once you said that, you could it almost like you could feel it. like, oh, OK, well, yeah. Well, I also wasn't sometimes particularly with the issues of race. If you talk about it, often people think you're personally blaming them or trying to make them feel bad uh, and I, it's like i'm not trying to make you feel bad i'm telling you what happened to me right these are different things your feeling bad has nothing to do <laughs> with what i'm yeah. saying and you said and i'm okay with that right yeah which i thought was awesome too, right <laughs> yeah but i i had to be okay with it because i i couldn't tell my story and worry so much about protecting their feelings hmm. but i also wasn't trying to make them feel Anything except for what I felt. You mentioned, and I think we've touched on it before, but you mentioned in your obviously in, in your book that if you want to affect people deeply, you have to tell the truth. I think one of the things that makes your speech land, because especially the people, I know a bunch of people that have seen it, and they're like, holy crap, have you seen Brian's speech, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it works because it's true, mm-hmm. right? And that's something that can never be overstated, right? right? Like, so even if you're, you're like, well, I mean, let's say they were uncomfortable or whatever. It's like, well, I mean, I got to right. I gotta tell the truth. Can you talk about why that's so clear to you? Like, I remember the first time I read your book when you said that. Mm-hmm. If you want to affect people deeply, you got to tell the truth. I was circling. I was like, holy crap. Why is that so important, whether you're writing a script or giving a speech or? Because of the believability, right? So um, in the book, I think I use this, this example. Um but it's, it's, you know, you when you watch the horror movie and the people separate and you go, who does that? <laughs> sure. Now you're not even focused on, you just go, well, they're stupid for doing it. And they get killed. You know, yeah, you're going to get killed because you shouldn't have gone off by yourself. Why yeah. would you separate? Why would you go into the basement if the killer's down there? What are, you, what are you doing? Right. You know the killer's down. You're going by yourself into the basement. Yeah. We don't buy it anymore because not true to human behavior. So it takes you outside to assess what's happening. Yeah. Right. Because if you're watching the stories for survival information, which I think you are. Yeah. That stupid survival information. Yeah. <laughs> Go to the basement where the killer is. Well, that's not survival information. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, you right. Know, you know what I mean. So, uh, so we, we, um, 
we're judging it now and we're not inside of it right so if you if you if you tell the truth and the truth is not doesn't have to be facts but yeah sure but if you tell the truth about how humans behave what happens is two things one is people aren't now they're not out of it because they're like oh yeah that looks like people the other thing that often happens is people recognize themselves right um and it's much more interesting and engaging if a character does the smart thing and it doesn't work. Yeah. Right? Oh, my God. You know, that didn't yeah. work, right? Yeah. Um, and then there's got to be another smart thing or another thing or another thing. Because sometimes in life you might do the smart thing and it might not work. Yeah. The smart thing doesn't always get you out of trouble for whatever reason. But you told the truth anyways. Like, there's a section and people will see it in the in the in the the speech where you talked about your dad and i thought that was interesting because you mentioned like you don't want to talk about this particular thing Mm -hmm. but you do and i was quite i was like why did brian talk about that if he just said i was like well i guess because it's true like like i was trying to figure that out like you know what i mean well because i would have been talking around it Hmm. right if i'm saying that i understood you know i talk about some violence and stuff but if i if i'm saying i understand this guy yeah well, if I leave that part out, then I can't make my point as strongly. Hmm. It's impossible. Yeah. Right? right. And in the longer piece, when I actually do what I'm going to do with the longer written piece, there's yeah. more in there. There's layers yeah. in there that I could not include in the talk. Right. But I just felt like I couldn't not talk about that. If I'm going to say, well, I understand. I, I've been hungry as a kid. You know what I mean? I've been, yeah. I had to be able to say those things. Yeah. So that I said I could see I could essentially I could see myself in this guy. What would you? It's almost a clone character. Like what would you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, he was kind of a clone, like given a different set of circumstances. I think that's true of all of us yeah. for everything. Anybody could have been. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Given a different set of circumstances, you could be this person or that person. Or I don't think it's different. It's Mother I was just, Teresa stuff you were talking about. Yeah, where she said, where Mother Teresa said, I. Started doing what I do, did because I, I realized there was a Hitler inside of me, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that there are, no matter what somebody's doing or who they are, given the right set of circumstances, you could be them. You know, it just has to be the right set of circumstances. Yeah. I remember once I was talking to a guy and I was like, wow, that's, uh, so uh, it was a barista at a coffee shop and Uh, all the baristas were complaining because they had to kick a homeless guy out of the bathroom because he was like taking a bath essentially in their sink and uh and uh they were kind of frustrated by it and and i said yeah i could see how that might be frustrating it's not you don't really think of it as your job you're a barista and i said i said but i said hey what would you do if you had to if you were homeless and you had to clean yourself like what would you do and the guy said well i would never be in that situation Wow. It's like the beginning of a movie. Yeah. And then you're like, yeah. well, let's see what happens <laughs> yeah. to the brief. Right? I just couldn't believe that he couldn't extend his empathy far enough to just imagine if he was in that situation. He yeah. just said, flat out, I would never be there. And he's also saying, well, that's a character issue. That guy doesn't have things because of yeah. a character. And you don't thing. know him. You don't, you, know, you don't know what his situation is. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you think had to happen to make that person that way – is the same stuff that would probably make you that way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, sure. you know? Yeah. Oh, he's schizophrenic and he can't afford 
yeah. to go to the hospital. He has right. to, oh, well, okay. You would do the same thing. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. You know? Or he's, he's got an addiction problem. Right. There are people with money with addiction problems. Sure. They just have enough money to be inside. Right. Right, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. I remember we did uh, a thing um, for homelessness. It was like a campaign. And the stats on it's like the majority of people on the streets, at least in Seattle, it was, it was due to financial circumstances. Right. Like the vast majority. Mm-hmm. And a huge percentage are women and children. Mm-hmm. And you don't know, like you don't yeah. have any idea. But statistically, more than likely, what happened was there was some sort of financial thing. Yeah. Lost a job. Mm-hmm. No family to go to. Whatever. Yeah. But, you know, to jump straight to, well, I'll never... Yeah, that would never happen to me. Yeah, it's almost like you want to back away because there's a lightning bolt coming, know, right? You know what I mean? I You're know. like, well, yeah, they're, a, just, they're a person. I just didn't understand the lack of empathy. I understood it was a hassle. I get that. Yeah, you know, I empathized with that too. Well, it must be a yeah. hassle I have to kick people out of. Yeah, right. Sure. But also, I think it's more of a hassle to be a guy who's take a bath in a sink at a coffee shop. Yeah, I think that's a bigger hassle. Right. <laughs> yeah. I remember there was some of the, we were looking at some of the statistics and there was all these quotes from homeless people. And one of them was, I sleep in trash because I am trash. And I remember thinking when I read that, like, cause they were saying that was the hardest part was getting people to mm-hmm. care about themselves again, yeah. to believe more than, but I remember that quote, I sleep in trash because I am trash. And I'm like, my God, like you don't know where people are coming from. Yeah. No, right. Um, so, yeah, yeah. so, uh, and I also think being a storyteller and trying to do it at the highest level means that it, that creates a kind of empathy, too, because you write all kinds of characters, right? Yeah. And you have to, if you're writing that character well, honestly. there's a homeless person in your book. There is a homeless in person. This in this book. book. Yeah. Just like a full yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And you wrote them very lovingly, too. And you'll discover why, but like, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I hope so. Yeah. But you know, it, but in order to write a, a good character, you have to be able to empathize with them, no matter who they are or what they've done or whatever. You you have to be able to empathize with them because they, if you're going to write them honestly from their perspective, yeah. Um, you know, they don't think they're bad people or doing bad things or, right. Be honest about it, but then that what that does is you do, you do that enough, right? I mean, they say that reading, uh, you know, um, uh, certain kinds of books, um, uh, certain kinds of fiction, literary fiction, creates empathy in readers, mm-hmm. right? So that's the study. Um, I have my issues with that study. I think that they're true. I think that they're right. Um, but because uh, what they were saying is. Literary fiction is better than genre fiction because it, you know, it teaches you how to empathize if you read literary fiction. Whereas if you're reading a mystery novel, you don't learn empathy. You just right. But my 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 thinking is, you know what? I bet you if you were reading a mystery novel and you tested people for their puzzle solving, they'd be better at that. Hmm. Right? Because sure. of, yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. So so yeah. it's like uh, they're just making it like look, see, yeah. they, they they had a bias and they got confirmation. Right. Bias. Yeah. Yeah. Like you know what I mean. Right. They got that confirmed. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right? Like, see, literary fiction is better because it teaches you how to empathize. Well, that's great. There are other things you could learn. Hmm. Or other ways to empathize than what they, maybe they were measuring or other ways to think. Yeah. Right? Other ways to think about things. 
So uh, I think if they tested for all those things, they would find that stories hit different things. Sure, that makes sense. But but having said that, I think that trying to write at the highest level you're capable of will also teach you empathy. Because you've got to create those characters, so you've got to live in their skin. Yeah. Right? When you're writing those characters, you are those characters while you're writing them. Yeah. I've written characters sometimes that are funnier than me and smarter than me. Like, stuff comes out of them. (laughs) Like, well, I never would have said that, but that's what that guy said. You know? Um, If you're doing it right, that happens. You're not... It's a weird... I can't explain it if it hasn't happened to you, but it's it's, it's almost like you're not in control of it. Hmm. Um, you're you're trying not to control it. Yeah. Right. You you if you've created characters that are three dimensional enough, then they just don't do things because you want them to do things. Because they're just like people that way. Right. And it feels false. I remember you saying that. Uh, well, you're like, well, your characters don't want to change because they're like you. Right. Right. <laughs> they're yeah. like uh, like people don't want to change. <laughs> yeah. They have to be forced to change. Yeah. And going like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like. Of course they're like us. Yeah. They are, right? Like, yeah. There was a movie that Albert Brooks made, and I love Albert Brooks. Yeah. He's hilarious and and, uh, and smart, and, you know. But he did this uh, movie called Mother hmm. and uh, with Debbie Reynolds. And he, uh, at the beginning of the movie, he's, um, <laughs> he's having uh, trouble with his wife. He's getting a divorce. So he decides that um, his problem with, women stems from his relationship with his mother so he moves in with his mother and I was like and people were like this is a great movie I'm like no it isn't because that guy knew exactly what he needed to do and so any tension that they had because he didn't get along with his mother yeah um, you knew he could just leave yeah he wasn't forced to be there it wasn't like the odd couple right odd couple you knew what was holding them together right so nothing was holding them together except for this guy's desperate need to want to change Hmm. well that People don't want to change. Yeah, that's not. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. So it, it 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 rang false. It wasn't that it wasn't funny or all that. But it, I mean, nobody. They, people talked about it like it was amazing then. But nobody knows about it now. Yeah. Because because of that flaw, like he needed a way to put force him into that situation. You know, I thought, well, what if something happened with his divorce and his assets got frozen? He didn't have any money, or right, right? find a yeah. way to get him there. To move in with his mother, but it should be the last place he wants to be. Yeah. What, in the speech that you gave, what changed for you through that whole process? What do you mean? Like, what did you learn throughout the process? Of writing it or writing the piece? No, just the whole the period. Whole, oh, yeah. the whole experience? Well, I remember uh, I was talking to uh, my friend Scott, the one who died I was talking about earlier. And I would visit his father after he died. I'd go visit him. And um, I was visiting him one day, and we were just talking. And this is years before my brother was killed. And I said something. We Somehow the death penalty came up, and I said I was against it. And he said something very interesting. He didn't argue or anything. He goes, I, I used to be against it, too. And he goes, I used to go to rallies and all kinds of things. I was totally against it. And he goes, then I had a friend who's... Um, whose daughter was killed, was kidnapped and killed. And I saw what it did to them, and it changed me, and it changed what I thought and how I felt about it. And at that moment, I thought, oh, I think I'm against the death penalty, but I guess I don't know. Right? 
mm-hmm. because I hadn't been challenged in that way. So years later, when my brother's killed, I remember thinking, I, I, I don't have any of that thing that makes me want that guy dead. I didn't have it. It wasn't because it was beyond intellectual then. It was beyond. I just didn't have it. I couldn't make it happen. I couldn't force it to happen. I just couldn't do it. It, it wasn't in me to, to, um, to hate him that way and want revenge that way. It just wasn't in me. And I learned that about myself because then it was tested. It wasn't just a theory, you know. It's easy to have theories, you know. Uh, my uncle who was in Vietnam said, it's, he goes, it's interesting when you're in a situation like that. He goes, people surprise you. People who you think would be the bravest people in the world are the people who, who get frozen and can't move and can't do things. And people you think can't handle it will step up to the challenge. And he goes, you never know who those people are going to be. Right, which means you don't know who you're going to be. You don't know who you are until, you know, it's real, whatever it is. And so I discovered that about myself, that, oh, I understand that uh, people are complicated and it's easy to go, that's a bad person, that's a good person, and that's easy. But people are more complicated than that. And I think there are very few just awful, evil people. I think they exist, but I, I think it's rare. I think the other things are happening usually. Um, I think it's rare. I think most people are damaged in some way. Yeah. You know, and that's all that's happening. That's just, that's just, all you're seeing is what happened because of the damage. Right? And, and uh, if we took care of damaged people, then we'd get less damaged. You know, they would cause less damage. Um, throwing people away. Yeah, it's one yeah. of the things you talk about. Yeah, and yeah. So you know, if you tell a person that they're worthless their whole life, what makes you think they would think anybody else was worth anything? And it doesn't. It, why would they? So you know, peop, you get what you, you sort of reap what you sow, that way. So I, I don't think, I think, so anyway, what I learned about myself was that I, um, that empathy was more helpful to me than anger or hatred. That, that it just didn't, you know, it just, I don't know, just not part of me. What did you learn? And and this is just, this is not what I think we thought this episode was going to be. It's, no. I actually think it's way more helpful than even the stuff we're going to talk about between 1998 and 2019 mm-hmm. when things are starting to really go for right mm-hmm. what did you learn there oh i mean between the hbo thing and now right oh that's a good question well there are probably several lessons in there um, the big lesson, well, the big lesson is the tortoise and the hare for me, right? Because it's all about slow and steady wins the race for me. Because I knew a lot of rabbits, right? <laughs> People who went on to much bigger things and, um, they run show business, right? <laughs> you know, um, I saw that happen a lot. And so, um, so for me, uh, I, the tortoise and the hare came into my mind a lot. Like 
I just slow and steady. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to keep getting better. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get better. Um, part of that too is, and I had to teach myself, by the way, I'm, you know, nobody taught me is not formally taught what I, so, um, I learned it on my own, which sometimes makes me impatient with people. Hmm. Can you explain that? Well, I go, you should watch these movies. Well, I don't feel like, oh, okay, never mind then. Never mind. Nobody was there to hand me this when I'm handing you. Mm-hmm. Never mind. Or when somebody says, people don't think, they don't get this. I'm like, you should read screenplays. Well, where do I find screenplays? They don't understand why that's a frustrating question for me. Like, it's just a, and I understand they think it's just an honest, innocent question, right? But it's not. I didn't grow up with Google. You can't Google where do you find a screenplay? You, if you grew up with Google, I found screenplays before the internet. They're out there. You can find them. And if you can't type Google, I mean, type uh, uh, screenplay into Google, guess what? It only gets harder after that. If yeah. you can't do that, yeah. don't be a screenwriter. Yeah. Right? If you can't be bothered with watching an old movie or watching the best stuff ever made, it only gets harder after that. Oh, two hours of your life, that's too, that's too much of a hassle? You're not going to then. If you can't do that, you're not going to put in the six years it takes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To write, right? Yeah. That's all I'm saying. It's or like the I, 20 years it takes, or, yeah, right? Yeah. I'm not trying to be a jerk about it, but it's like, look, you got to, this is hard. This is hard. It only gets harder. So if you can't do the simplest stuff, I, I'm not sure exactly how to help you. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to do that. Uh, it's because it's harder than, it only gets harder. It only gets harder than reading a screenplay or watching The Twilight Zone or, you know, or, you know, mm-hmm. or Billy Wilder movies or whatever it is. And that's just on the work side. Yeah. Right. That's, forget all the other. Forget navigating the industry. Y- and... Yeah. 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 Because yeah, it's a hard industry no matter who you are. And then it gets harder as yeah. you get further away from what they think is the normal person who should be doing this. Right. Yeah. You know, it gets harder if you're a woman. It gets harder if you're a person of color. It gets harder if you're a woman of color. And anybody who right now is going, I don't know if that's true, just take five minutes and look it up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Look up the stats. Yeah. They're so staggering, right? Yeah. Like, just look it up. They're posted. You can see all the stats from 2018. Yeah. And however you feel and whatever progress you you think is being (laughs) made right now, look it up. Yeah. Look it up. Comic books, too. Yeah. It's insane. It's insane. It, on the graph, there's a graph. People of color, especially black people, particularly, like it's this little sliver on the graph. <laughs> like everybody else has got something. It's a little teeny sliver. It's as close to being impossible and still being possible to write comics if you're a black person. Didn't you go into a comic book one time to talk about a comic you had just written that was coming out? And the guy who owned the comic book shop said something crazy. There's a couple of those stories. Okay. Which one, I don't know which I one. I remember him was. being like, wait, you're going to you're gonna write for who? Or like. Oh, oh that way. <laughs> I don't know. We're not going to use names, right? But like. <laughs> yeah. That was. Um, just to demonstrate the comic book thing. Cause, well, okay. So this was, not, this was not a comic book publisher. Hmm. This was a, a retailer. Oh, got it. Okay. So it's a little different. But yeah, that's what I meant. Comic store. Sorry. So okay, so it was retailing. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah. So I I'd written this 
comic, little comic, uh, put out by a small publisher um, about police brutality. And, and uh, uh, these guys had seen it, Dwayne McDuffie and uh, Dennis Cowan, who um, were uh, a black artist and writer who um, had started their own, um, their own company called Milestone. And Milestone, uh, the books were published by DC Comics, but so there was a DC logo on them and a Milestone logo on them. Um, and but they they published the books at DC, but Milestone was its own company. And they saw me at San Diego at the con, and I had a shirt with this comic on it that I had written. And they were like, "You did that?" I'm like, "Yeah." And I had been trying to break into comics for a while at that point. And they were like, "Because uh, this was ninety." Two, ninety-three, something like that, and um, uh, I started trying to get into comics in 80, um, 86, 87, something like that, right? So it'd been a while, and anyway, they saw me and they're like, "Dude, you're gonna write for us, right?" So Milestone had this sort of—they were all—they um, started with black characters, but then they branched out. They were gonna do all minority, so it was like a minority line, yeah, <clears throat> of comics. So uh, they hadn't published yet. They sent me the, the, the Bible for their books and their world and their universe and stuff and had me come up with a bunch of stories. And I was really happy because I'd been trying to break in for a long time. And I, I walked into the comic book shop where I'd been buying comics since I was a kid. And uh, I said to the guy um, who had known me since I was 12, you know, and I said, hey, I'm going to be writing for Milestone. And in my imagination, he, in my imagination, what he said was, that's great, man. I've seen you come in here since you were a little kid, and I know you've been trying to do that for a long time, and congratulations. Yeah, it's really great. I'm really happy for you. That's what happened in my imagination. That's not what happened. What happened was I said, hey, I won't say his name. I said, hey, I'm going to be writing for Milestone. And he, really? They're not just going to hire black guys, are they? Because that wouldn't be fair. That would be just like, and he kind of cut himself off. <laughs> so it said a couple of things. To me, it was really weird. Like, I couldn't make it up because I, I, it came out of the clear blue sky. But he looked like he was going to faint. And then he said, hey, they're not going to just hire black guys. I'm like, well, for, wait a minute. So you're concerned about some hypothetical white guy you don't know not getting a job rather than a black guy you actually know getting a job? Yeah. What's happening up there? Yeah. Right. And the other thing was, and this was an industry-wide rumor. I heard this all the time. Um, you know, Milestone doesn't hire white people. And people were pissed about it. But it wasn't true. They had an editor named uh, Matt Wayne who worked for them who was white. They had a, um, uh, an artist who was, was great, John Paul Leone, who started with them. And is, he's a kind of a guy now. But they had white guy people working for them. But the rumor was, and it's funny because this guy, this retailer said, well, they're not going to be like we, because that wouldn't be. F oh, oh, oh! So you understand it? Huh? You understand it? Yeah. It's just okay if you think it's happening to me. Right. I found that. Yeah, and I told you I was with Wayne McDuffie one time. We were at the con. I wasn't with him at the con, but I was talking to him. He was talking to me about writing a miniseries. I created a character over there, and they were like, "Hey, we're thinking about doing a miniseries." So we were talking about that at his booth. And then that kind of talk kind of petered off. He was at the sort of the, um, he was at the DC booth. And that conversation sort of just petered out. We were done. 
And I had some friends come up, and I started talking to my friends. And then I saw this very famous comic book writer, white guy, very famous comic book writer, come up to Dwayne and say, uh, and I'm standing right there. I see this whole thing. Yeah. And he goes, he says, uh, so I, I, uh, I really like what you guys are doing. And Dwayne, this guy's a big deal writer. And Dwayne was like, oh, thanks. I, that means a lot. I'm really flattered. He goes, yeah, you guys are doing good work over there. He goes, I'd really like to work for you guys. And Dwayne would, said, he said, that would be amazing. We would love to have you do something. And the guy says, but, you know, of course, you know. And Dwayne said, what? He goes, well, you know. And they, Dwayne said, what? He goes, well, you know. And he goes, I don't know what. what. He goes, well, I'm white. He goes, we hire white people all the time. I'm like, I didn't know where this rumor started, but it had no basis in reality. But it was industry-wide, and it, had, it, it was weird. And some people thought, well, the fact that you're working means that I'm not working. Like, it was this hmm. weird. It was weird. Um. I didn't know where it was coming from, and it came from people I didn't expect it to come from, too. Man, it's crazy, because percentage-wise, isn't it something? It's teeny. It's teeny. Like, we pulled it up one time. It was nuts. Yeah, Four percent. It was something crazy. Yeah, it's not even. It's like, it's so small. It's such a small percentage. Might be smaller than tech. <laughs> so, so. But. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's yeah. what's so awesome. Yeah. Like, people don't understand what goes into this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The fact that, like, statistically... This is insane, <laughs> yeah, right? You know yeah. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And this is one of, I mean, you have at least two other books coming out. I have two like, books coming out from them, yeah. Two more. It's awesome, man. Oh, thanks. It's really amazing. Well, I hope people like it. There's a lot went into it. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. So, a couple of things. Old Souls comes out tomorrow. It'll probably be the, the by the time this comes out, it'll probably be the day before you watch this episode. Uh -huh. <laughs> um <laughs> And Whiteface, you're going to post Whiteface, which is awesome. We can link to it, mm -hmm. um, which is the film that you made for $1,000. And I know a lot of friends and stuff like that. But when you watch that, realize you made it for $1,000, right? Wrote it in a day. <laughs> Wrote it in a day. Yeah. Ran on HBO for a couple of years. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and by the way, yeah. if I had made it now and it ran at Slam Dance, it would have been eligible because now it's a qualifying festival. <laughs> would have been eligible for an Oscar now. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Anyway, you were saying. And the last thing is, we're also going to link to your talk at EG because mm -hmm. it's really amazing. Um, but other than that, it's like, congrats, man. Thank you. This is this is awesome. Thanks. Obviously, well deserved. But <laughs> my God, um, thank you for doing this. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks for watching. You are a storyteller. If you have any questions, or if there's a storytelling topic you'd like us to cover, leave a comment below or email us at hello at beliefagency.com.